Thanks, Josh. I, too, remember seeing Josh as whatever grade he says he was in, playing basketball at Grace Community Church School, and I just remember looking actually at him and wondering, why is the coach playing on the court? Because the dude had a mustache. And so I found out, no, he, he was just, uh, had a big mustache for his age. He wasn't quite tall for his age. He just had a stash when he was in seventh grade. And so um, it's, it's sweet to see where God has Josh now and how he has raised him up. And uh, thankful for him, I uh, was at his parents' house uh, down at a Bible study near Grace Church for students. And so it's neat to be with him. Uh, Pastor Adam and I get to know each other. I work up here at the school now, Masters University, in a department called Church Relations, so this is kind of what I do. Uh, I'm not a pulpit supply preacher, but uh, I'm just trying to work for the school to strengthen relationships with local churches, and most of that is getting together with the pastors of churches in the region, uh, whether they're alumni or like-minded either way. We just want the local churches in, in the region here that are sending students to the school, and some that aren't, to know that we're here. Uh, We want to equip, we want to train, and we want to send them back out because we're all in it for the same reason, for the glory of Christ and the gospel commission. And so that's what we're about, that's what I'm about. And it just so happened that when Adam and I got together about a month ago, he's like, hey, would you be able to preach for me when I'm gone? And I was like, I'm the lesser Adam, but sure, I'll go for it. And, uh, you know, I've not been to this church before, so I snuck in a couple weeks ago and got to sing with you. And it is just a joy to be back up here doing this, uh, getting to preach after the last five years of ministry in Hickory, North Carolina. This feels at home, uh, being able to preach God's word to his people who have a love and a hunger for his word. So let's take a look at that. Uh, This morning, if you want to turn to Psalm 103, a psalm of David, we'll be looking there at what I've titled a psalmist soliloquy. And if you're familiar with that term, uh, maybe you think about Hamlet, you think about um, on stage with the skull in his hand, to be or not to be, that is the question. And that's a soliloquy. It's a, it's a conversation that you get in on on a main character that he's having with himself, but you, the audience, get to hear it. But he's not talking about the person on the stage. There's nobody with him. It's just it's the thoughts of a person expressed that we get to listen in on. And when I read Psalm 103 and hear David open up with, bless the Lord, O my soul, that's what I think of. It's that we get to listen in on a conversation that David is having with himself. And we get to hear him talking to himself. And maybe you're familiar with that. You've been a person that talks to themselves. You've seen someone talking to themselves. Not making any accusations there. I'm just saying it happens to us. Uh, I recall this in my uh, growing up. And this uh, uh, brother is two years older than me. Um, there was three of us. And I would catch my dad talking to himself. Because of having three teenage boys. At the end of a long day, I would overhear him just muttering to himself. How is he going to survive? Whether it was my oldest brother wrecking the car, the middle brother sneaking out and getting caught in the middle of the night. One time I came back with my hair bleached blonde, and my dad just didn't get this. And so he was oftentimes pacing the halls of our uh, middle floor as I would be upstairs, and I'd listen in and be like, man, dad's talking to himself. Is that okay? And my brother's like, yeah, he's always been doing that. Uh, He's just having a little soliloquy time, and uh, just, just venting maybe that was what we'd call it. So we do that. We talk to ourselves, maybe it's just the conversation you have running in your head throughout the day, kind of talking to yourself about the day, but we're going to see in Psalm 103 what a biblical example of talking to one's own soul is, but more important than that is where he goes. As I read it, follow along and see how David shepherds his own soul to lift himself out of the horizontal, out of the here and now of what's going on in his life, to look outward to the people of God and then upward 
the God who reigns in the heavens. So follow along as I read Psalm 103, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over, it is no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. May God bless the reading and the preaching and the hearing of his word this morning. Well, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes we find a character speaking to himself, a soliloquy, talking oneself through perhaps guilt, trying to come to some type of resolution. Maybe it transpires that that person actually is lifted up out of it. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe they spiral into greater madness and they feel that all is lost. Well, that's what I feel when I read Psalm 103. David starts by having to conjure up in his own soul hope. And if we know anything about David, we know that his life was not easy. We maybe tend to uh, think, well, you know, by the end, he had conquered, he was king, and things ended okay, he passed on the kingdom to his son. But in the midst of it, we know that David, when he speaks of the ways in which God has helped him in his life in this psalm, we know that he was a man familiar with sin. He was a man familiar with sickness. He was a man familiar with enemies. He was a man familiar with death. All of those things come out of the life of David. And as we see this morning and move through this passage, we see how David not just talks to his own soul about what God has done for him, but moves from there to what God has done for all of his children and ultimately what God has done in all creation. So quickly, if you want to outline this this morning, one to five is going to be about what God has done for David and how we can take that and say what God has done for us, what God has done for me to personalize it. Then we'll see in 6 to 18 what God has done for all his children. That anyone that is a child of God that has been redeemed by the blood of Christ and is in the family of God can see he has done this for all his children by way of the example of Israel. And last we see in 19 to 22 what God has done for his creation that causes all of creation to erupt in praise to God. I can't help but think as we sang this morning 
My daily reading today in the Psalms led me to Psalm 33. And this is really, I think, what drives this psalm is to say, it's, it's not enough just to see it, but it's more to say it and to sing it and rejoice in it. Psalm 33 says, sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Why? Praise is becoming to the upright. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. That when we see God's loving kindness, his faithfulness, his love towards his people, it wells up in us a reason to praise. Yet, in the life of David, as we'll see this morning, he's not there at the beginning. Hence, he has to coach his soul, call his soul to praise, to bless, to say what is true about God, so that he can dig deep and find this is why God is so good, what he has done for him. So we learn from David this morning how he works from his life to the corporate life of his people to the universe, from inner man to outer space, from internal to infinite. You can see the concentric circles of David's praise. So we can learn from his as well. And one thing I would say we learned from the outset here, just to kind of hang your thoughts on this, is that not always is praise spontaneous. Not always do we just naturally feel like giving God our praise. It's our fallenness still in this tent, in our bodies, with our minds that still have sin corrupting in various ways in our heart. We're not always inclined to just erupt in praise, whether it's walking in the door to sing on a Sunday morning, whether it's engaging another person to talk about what God has done in your life, to share with them, whether it's to reach out, to call, to see someone, how someone is doing, all ways in which we can worship God, it just doesn't always come natural. David shows us this morning it takes an effort to command our soul to exercise concentration on God that then would lend itself to praising him for who he is and what he's done. So let's start in Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. David starts down a path of calling his own soul to praise God, to give the glory God is due for who he is. You see a quick chiastic structure in verse 1, and all that is is the formula of A, B, B, A, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. He's just using repetition, but changing the words as artists do to say the same thing, but in slightly a different way to make it resonate. Bless the Lord is the same as him saying, bless his holy name. O my soul is the same as him saying, all that is within me. And why does he do that? Well, he uses repetition and parallelism, I think, to emphasize, soul, you are made to praise God. But yet we also see in David the psalmist, the artist, that he wants to use words in a specific quality and pattern to give form to this. And I think importantly to give intentionality to this. Then he repeats, verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, slightly changing it. Not just all that is within me, but from now the negative and forget none of his benefits. And this is beautiful. This is what I love about the psalms is that they teach us something about what praise looks like. That it's just not the praise in and of itself, the content, but it's the intention behind our praise. What we come to bring to God is our best. And when we truly are delighting in God, it is our best. I love C.S. Lewis, what he has to say about the Psalms. He says, the most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is to express that same delight in God, which made David dance. I love thinking as I approach this psalm that God intends my heart to be lifted up, not just in what I receive by the content, but in the way in which I receive it, in the 
intentionality behind it, the artistry in it. And we see that artistry to begin with. But now it does move to content. What is the first thing God is, or David is can commend that God has done for him? The first thing he commends, verse 3, is this. God who pardons all your iniquities. Now that who is not questioning as if who is it that does this. It's basically him just making a statement. It is the Lord who pardons all your iniquities, soul. And that you'll see that same pattern follow in the five other benefits that he names in three through five. He starts with a who, but it's really him making a statement saying, it is God who pardons. It is God who heals. It is God who redeems. It is God who crowns. It is God who satisfies. There's no question here. What we see is this is recognition. This is remembering. This is David not wanting to be like Israel, who God had to warn. Do not forget your creator. When you come into the land that I've promised you and you look around and you see all the good things that you've been promised, that you've now received, and you might be tempted to think, he tells them in Deuteronomy, that your righteousness earned this, that your effort, your strength got you here. No, what David is recalling is that any good thing he has received finds its origin in God. And he calls all of himself to remember this quickly in verse 1. Look back there. He says, all that is within me. It's an expression of the greatest commandment in Scripture in Mark 12, 30. When Jesus was asked the greatest commandment, his response is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And David is calling, calling all the faculties that he's been given to give God all his praise. Nothing half-hearted or ill-conceived or unintelligent would be right for David the psalmist. He wants to give God his best. Yet, in God remembering what God has done for him, the first thing he remembers is the most important thing. Of primacy, of greatest importance in verse 3, we see it. God who pardons all your iniquities. It's the forgiveness of sin. The first step David takes in remembering what God has done for him is his salvation. And it's a good lesson for all of us, isn't it? That when we try to, in the midst of life, that might be turning upside down as we speak, and we're looking at what's happening around us and wondering, God, are you there? Are you working? Are you real? As a believer, before we try to search it out and say, but okay, remember all the good things you've done for my life? We would stop like David and say, you know what, before any of that, the reason I'm even talking to you, God, is because you've forgiven my sin. The reason I'm having this conversation, we can speak, I can hear from you. Your Holy Spirit illumines this in my life and convicts me and shapes me and brings me joy is because I have pardoned iniquity. I can know you. You're not distant. You're not a God who is unknown. You are the God who has made himself known to me by way of Jesus Christ and putting my faith in him. Calvin says about this verse, it is not without cause that David begins with God's pardoning mercy for reconciliation with God is the fountain from which all other blessings flow. That is true. We first will stop with David and remember who pardons all iniquity, who forgives all sin, who removes all transgressions, and that is what we first come to praise God for. Now, if I polled this room and said, hey, what do you, what do you know most about David? What stands out to you? I think if it was the younger people in the room, and not to offend anyone, I'm talking like the really younger people, like the knee highs, 
maybe the you know, waist highs, it would be David and Goliath. I got a four-year-old and a two-year-old son. All they want to read is David and Goliath. I open the Bible. It, this is not Christocentric preaching. This is David-centric preaching. All Amos wants to see is David and Goliath. In the picture book, Jesus, it's David. Uh, Mary, it's Goliath. Anything he sees, my little one, he sees David and Goliath. That's the big story to him. It stands out. But if I asked adults, I think it would be David and Bathsheba, David and Uriah. I think it would be the adultery, the murder. It would be getting confronted. Because that stands out to us as, wow, here's a man after God's own heart that did this? How could it be? How could he fall so far so fast? And I think that's why, first in the list for David to remember what God has done for him, forgetting none of his benefits, the first benefit he remembers is pardoned iniquity. David is happy in God because his sins have been forgiven. Go left in your Bible in Psalms to Psalm 32 quickly. David rejoices in the fact that sin can be forgiven. This is another Psalm of David, Psalm 32. How does he start it? How blessed or happy is he whose transgression is forgiven? It's not just a benefit, it's a blessing. It's something David looks at in his life and says, I can't move past this. Psalm 32.1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, said another way, whose sin is covered. Said another way, verse 2, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Though David knows he's guilty and deserving of God's punishment, he knows the blessed man, the forgiven man, is one whom the Lord takes that iniquity that should be imputed to them and imputes it somewhere else, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Verse 5, yet he acknowledged his sin to God and his iniquity he didn't hide and he confessed it and God forgave the guilt of his sin. Go right in your Bible a few more chapters to Psalm 51. What's this psalm all about? I think Psalm 51 could be considered a commentary on Psalm 103.3. When David says pardoned iniquity, all of Psalm 51 is David's prayer for pardoned iniquity. He expands it. It takes him a whole chapter, Psalm 51, to talk about how God has washed him clean, how God has forgiven his sin, how God has been good to him in salvation, how he recognizes the sin that is ever before him, brought forth in iniquity, verse 5 of Psalm 51. But yet ask him to be purified and cleansed and washed and whiter than snow, asking for a clean heart to be created. This, back to Psalm 103.3, is the expansion of the most important benefit David recognizes, pardoned iniquity. And that's why it's not cliche for us as the church to gather. And on a weekly basis, though it seems we always are saying the same thing, let's rejoice in the gospel today. Let's sing the goodness of the gospel. Let's celebrate the gospel. That if we, like David, want to conjure up in our soul the greatest amount of worship, we need to go to the greatest depths of what draws that worship out. And it's seeing that God reached down to us. That he condescended. That he sent his son. That he did what he didn't have to do. And he saved you and me when he didn't have to do it. And, and, and this is what brings praise into our lives and lifts our spirits out of wherever we might be. This psalm, we don't know what it's attached to in David's life, what particular time he might have written it, but we do know this, that first on his mind about the benefits of God are that his sins are forgiven. Then in the couplet of Psalm 3, or Psalm 103.3, that verse, he ties it to who heals all your diseases. And some of us might wonder about, well, is there a direct connection there? 
Because in Psalm 32, we just read that when he hadn't confessed his sins, when he was hiding his sin, Psalm 32, he says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. I was drained away with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I confessed my transgressions to the Lord and he forgave the guilt of my sin. David very well could have been talking about in Psalm 103.3 that the pardoning of his sin and his iniquity led to healing of some disease. He could have been, but we don't know that. But what we do know is this, that the ultimate damage that sin does to us is not in the damage it does to our physical bodies. It is as Josh said earlier today, that we know sin corrupts us to the core, down to the soul level. And so everything about us becomes corrupt. So if our sin is forgiven, verse 3, and if our iniquity has been pardoned, then our greatest disease is going to be healed, both in the immediate and that we're renewed, we're a new creation, and then ultimately in our glorification, we can know that everything about us is new, both physically and spiritually. So David could be looking ahead like he did in Psalm 16 when he would be at the right hand of God and pleasures forevermore. That God was not going to abandon his soul to Sheol or allow his holy one to undergo decay. Well, he knew his earthly body would go undergo decay. But the fact that his soul would live on and he would know the path of life and have fullness of joy in the presence of God. David is also seeing that the worst disease any of us have, the disease of sin, gets healed ultimately. And that's important. Not to skim past the idea that there could be connection between sin in our lives and sickness, but I don't think we can go that far here. All I could see is that he connects pardoned iniquity, healing of disease, and in my mind, and in David's mind, potentially, there could be this worst disease, this worst problem that he has, is the sickness of sin that God heals him from and would ultimately heal him from perfectly. He doesn't stop there then. He talks about God's redeeming and rewarding affection in verse 4. He links together that God redeems his life from the pit and crowns him with loving kindness and compassion. He doesn't leave the second part of that out. First, he starts with redeemed life from the pit. And again, in the life of David, we know he did stare death in its face. We know many a times. Psalm 3, it was written when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. Psalm 18, God delivered David from the hand of Saul. Psalm 57, Saul was pursuing David to kill him and he fled into a cave. So we do know David, the warrior king, that he did have brushes with death in the physical level. But David also knows that his life was ultimately redeemed from the pit of Sheol, from outer darkness, from knowing that he eternally could be with God one day. And not only that, that he was redeemed with the second part of verse 4, he was crowned with loving kindness and compassion. Brings us to such a rich word in the Old Testament, God's loving kindness. It's his loyal love. It's his faithful love. It's his unchanging love that he has because of the covenant promise he makes to his children to never leave them nor forsake them, to be with them, that no matter what they do to him, he will still be with them. And he calls them to come back, to return, to turn away and turn back to him. David has this loving kindness and compassion as an image of a crown. And though David knew the crown of a kingdom, king of Israel, leader of an army, knew what that crown was like. The greatest crown he knows of is being crowned with the loving kindness and compassion of God. 
And, and these, again, can so easily become cliche or throwaway for us to think, oh, you know, I don't have many things in this world, but you know what I have? I have the love of God. Isn't that wonderful? It is wonderful to know that God loves me and will not break his promise to keep me. And the times when I feel like the last thing I deserve is the love of God. I see the sin in my life. I see how I fall short of his glory daily. That I would still deserve to be crowned with his loving kindness and compassion. Well, it's not based on what I've done for him. It's what he's done for me. He pardoned me. He healed me. He redeemed me. And so therefore, as a loving father would, and we'll see this later on in verse 13, as a loving father has compassion, he crowns me with his loving kindness and compassion. The last benefit that David highlights in verse 5 is that he satisfies your years with good things. Again, still talking to his soul. Ends here saying, basically, soul, all of your years that you've been satisfied with any good thing, that's not by accident. A good, gracious, loving father loves to give good things to his children. And soul, he's done that for you. And then in... in, the form of an image, he says at the end of verse 5, his final expression to the benefits that God brings him, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. We don't know how old David was when he wrote this, yet we can imagine that it was sometime later in life because he's been through all of the things he just listed, that there was some youthful spirit left in David still because he could call upon the goodness of God. He uses what might have been the greatest image in the time of Israel of strength, and renewal and majesty, that of the eagle, because the eagle was so respected, its size, soaring above the mountains of Israel, seeing it and wondering, just how old is that bird? I mean, it looks good. It's just, it's amazing. It just keeps going. It looks, I mean, you just never see it dirty and old, and you just don't see the eagle falling out of the sky because one wing went down. This thing's still gliding, and David says, at the end of all these things you do for me, God, all these benefits, that, I'm like that eagle that just keep, seems to keep on going and going and going. And we see this in Isaiah 40, 31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not get tired. They'll walk and not become weary. And so David puts all these thoughts, just talking about his own life, into poetic form to help describe the way in which God strengthens and satisfies him. And I think what God has done for us in this opening section is given us a most helpful guide when we find it difficult at times to bless God. It's to start with the one thing that every believer has in common, pardoned iniquity. And to follow that train of thought and then to say, you know what, even if I am suffering with some illness right now, I know ultimately God is my healer. You know, I came from a church in Hickory, North Carolina, about the, roughly the, maybe the same size as this church, a couple hundred people, but what stood out to me right away was the massive amount of doctors in the audience. Uh, one, that was comforting to me to know that there were doctors there, and uh, it also helped pay for my, me to be hired. I mean, we had a lot of doctors there. I was really thankful to those guys. We were able to staff, and, you know, they had their sons in my ministry, so they're like, Adam, we're keeping an eye on you. We got you here. We're keeping you here. And I would get to know some of these doctors. They would take me out to lunch. And one of them I was talking to one time, he was a surgeon, and I was talking about what he did and what he found uh, that he loved about his job and helping people get better. But he, he looked at me and said, Adam, you know what I really love about my job as a surgeon is this. When the people come to me after the surgery and, and they're starting to get better, 
and, and they want to shower me with praise and, and say, oh, Doc, you know, just thank you so much for your, what you did. I'm healing. All credit goes to you. And he says, no, I did the surgery. God did the healing. And he used that as an opportunity to bring praise to God. And we see this in David in the opening of the Psalms. Is he's using every benefit he's seen happen in his life to bring praise back to God. And I learned from that personally. To be specific and intentional about the way in which when my soul is low, to look back at my life and say, what good things has God done for you, Adam? And don't just name what those things might be, but trace them back to the character of God. That Adam, as you rejoice in being forgiven of your sin, praise God that he's a savior. Adam, as you rejoice in feeling like your life is worth something and that you've been redeemed, what, when I sometimes look back and think what I could have been, when I, when I get back to my hometown and I meet some of my old high school friends, unbelievers, who seem to not have any hope in life, and I think, you know, I'm no different from them. I grew up right down the street. I sat in the same classroom. Why am I where I am today? It's but the grace of God and his kindness of redeeming me. And it's in that, though, that I look up and say, God, but that's because you're a redeeming God. This isn't just you do these good things for me. This is who you are. Why do you crown me with loving kindness and compassion? Because you're king and you're, you're love. Why do you satisfy me with good things? Because you, by nature, are a giving God. And that's what we learn from this first section as we look to our own lives. But what do we learn in this middle section, the longest section, verses 6 to 18? Well, David moves in verse 6 to talking about the Lord performs righteous deeds, and that could be the capstone to what he's just talked about, but it also launches him forward. See, he, he could sum up all that God has done for him in 1 to 5 and say, yes, God has performed all these righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed, and that's true to David, but he uses it to launch out into our second section of what God has done for all of his children. And so look at verse 6. It's the pivot point. He says, the Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. And now he moves into plural language. He includes himself. Verse 9, he will not strive with us. Verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins or rewarded us according to our iniquities. See, David is now looking back to what God has done for his people in history in Israel. And saying, I'm part of that too. All these things that are true of me, now I'm going to look and see how they're true for God's people. And of all places for him to go, as we continue to walk down from verse 6 to 7, he wants to highlight a specific time in the history of Israel where God made known, what does it say in verse 7? He made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the sons of Israel. Well, the whole Old Testament is about how God has made his ways known in his acts to the sons of Israel. So what specifically does David want to highlight here? Look down in your Bible at verse 8. He quotes from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. We'll go back to Exodus 34. And I think there's a reason David, as he is going through the psalm and, and conjuring up in his own soul reason to praise God, the one common element he can find that he could have solidarity with any child of God in all of the Old Testament, because he couldn't relate to all of them. There are different ways God has benefited other people as he would read the Old Testament, as he would have his own copies, as he would hear the stories of what God has done for his people. 
But David would know specifically there was one way God has worked for his people in a specific way that blesses both him and all who call upon the name of the Lord. And he finds it in Exodus 34. Looking back quickly to the last chapter, God's anger, or chapter 32 and 33, God's anger was rightfully burning against Israel. Moses is up on Sinai. He's getting the commandments. And what are they doing down at the bottom? They're worshiping a false idol. I mean, imagine the audacity of the people. To be told, you should have no other God before me. And so what's the first thing they do? They make a false God. I mean, right there, if God did reward according to iniquity, they would have been gone. But we see in Exodus 32 and 33, Moses is pleading for them. God's anger is burning against them, and Moses is saying, no, but you have brought them out of here. Can they still find favor in your sight? 33, 16, how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Moses is speaking for all of them. Is it not by your going with us so that I and we, your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the earth? On behalf of Israel, Moses is basically saying this. Look, how do we know you're still for us? I mean, because rightfully so, in your anger, we should be wiped out. How will we know, we know you still love us and care for us and won't leave us? And so God is going to tell Moses something about himself, Exodus 34, 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so flip back to Psalm 103, verse 8. David is quoting the same section. But why is he doing this? Well, if you move with him in the progression of this thought, he goes back to the moment in Israel's history where God lays it all out and says, look, in my anger, I could deal with you according to your sins and reward you according to your iniquities. And you would be wiped out. You'd be gone off the face of the earth. But what is this covenant-keeping God going to do for his people? Verse 10, he doesn't deal with them according to sin. He doesn't reward according to iniquity. And somebody might be sitting out there saying, well, then how is God just? It sounds like he's just going to sweep this under the rug. How can he be both the just and justifier? How could he not punish Israel in his anger and wipe them out for the iniquity they've just committed? Because he just told them not to have any false gods before him. And there they go and have some false gods before him. And David's mind is he's talking to his soul and saying, soul, what is the one thing that connects how you have worked in my life with the life of any person that has called upon your name and follows you and believes in faith that you are their God? That even in their sin, verse 10, and even in their iniquity, what do you do for him? What is all of your promise to be their loyal, loving father built on? It's built on verse 11 and 12 and 13. The covenant faithfulness of Yahweh. Verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Why? Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. That's the answer. Why has God not wiped his people out then or ever when we sin? Because as high as the heavens are above the earth, and we haven't figured out that distance yet, where our great high priest... Hebrews 4, who makes intercession for us, is seated. He's that high above us. 
And we look to him and say, as high as that is, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. Now, those who fear Yahweh, in the Old Testament, we know that's the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge. Those who fear him, it's just not fear as in trepidation, it's reverence, it's awe, it's worship. A true follower of God, even in their iniquity and sin, knows that his loving kindness allows him not to reward us according to our iniquity. And is that not the same truth we celebrate in the gospel when we sing? And we tell others they can be forgiven? Listen, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're far from God, if you've turned from God, you don't want to move past the promise of pardoned iniquity to any other blessing, any other benefit. Though you may see, oh, God can do all these other things for me. He's God. You want to come to him first and foremost and only by the blood of Christ that tells you that your sin can be forgiven. And any other benefit you get by having a relationship with God, by being reconciled to God is ancillary to the greatest benefit, which is this, your Sin will not be held against you. God won't deal with you one day, both now and forever, according to your iniquity. Come to God today. Turn to Christ and trust in him. That is the good news of the gospel, that when you're in a church and somebody invites you and people are singing, you're wondering, what's going on here? Why are Christians so happy? What's different? What do they have? This is what they have. I mean, all the things we might not have. We may not have perfect health. We may not feel like we're crowned with many of the things of this world as believers, but we do know we have this in common and have solidarity with any child of God. Rich, poor, wherever they grew up, whatever situation they've come out of, the one thing we have solidarity with is that he has been gracious to us. He has forgiven us. And so if you're not in Christ today, God is offering to you in his son forgiveness of sin. He is who he says he was. And I know right now Pastor Adam is teaching through John, so you're getting presented with Christ, the one who comes right out in chapter 1, as God, very God. The Word dwelt with us. He condescended. He came to us. And when you trust in Him and take the free offer of the gospel, giving all of your sin to Him, He takes that and gives you all His righteousness, then you can rejoice that God won't deal with you according to your iniquities ever. Ever, you say? Well, yeah, look at verse 12. I mean, could God be you know, even though he's forgiven me right now, I mean, if I'm just so bad, though, is he kind of keeping tabs on my sin? Like, we could say he's washed them away, but really, he doesn't remember these things? Well, look at verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Those distances will never meet. And they'll keep going in opposite directions. And so it's not just the promise of God's great loving kindness that we have by way of Jesus Christ, it's also that that sin as a believer that we commit, that we feel guilt-ridden over and wonder, will God forgive me again? Take off the again. Because he doesn't remember it. He's removed it as far as the east is from the west. It's just, will God forgive me? Of course he'll forgive me. On what basis? Look at verse 13. That he loves you, child of God. Verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who, again, fear him. He's not sweeping anything under the rug. Our part of the deal, our side of the covenant, is we love and worship and fear God by way of trusting in Christ. He is our only salvation. But then we rejoice in the forgiveness of the gospel every day that we see God as a father who has compassion on his children, on those who fear him. Having sons that are four and two, oftentimes I am short-tempered with them. 
I didn't think it would happen to me. I was one of the, you know, I was one of those uncles for about 10 years in my single years in my 20s. I was super fun uncle. I roll in, I take them out for candy, I get them sugared up, and I give them back to their parents. And I was like, you know, Lord, if it ever comes the day that I have my own sons, it's going to be so easy because I'm just going to be this all the time. We're going to do candy. We're going to do milkshakes. We're going to do party and late. We're going to do TV. And now I don't want to do any of that. I know the ill effects of sugar on a toddler. And I don't want to keep them sugar high because I know it happens. Toys start flying. Heads get smashed. Shoving matches occur. Body slamming, you know, off the, the crib. I mean, it's just, it gets mayhem in their room. They're sharing a little room right now, Hickory. Real estate's great. Big old house. I mean, at least in my standards. And then you come here, and I'm like, whoa. It's just like cut in half. And cost of living doubles. And the boys are sharing a room now. And there's a lot of fights, and I'm breaking up a lot. And I'm trying to be this pious pastor. I'm writing my sermon, and i got to go in and break up a fight at 7 in the morning. And as quickly as my anger is instigated, and, and there's discipline for that, and then there's restoration. How much more than my compassion overwhelms me after that? The, and, and that's the thing I would have never predicted about being a dad as well. That yeah, I can get angry pretty easily when, when they're hitting each other and hurting each other. But yet I never seem, at least so far, to wonder how, am I going to run out of compassion? Because in taking my cues from verse 13, how does God deal with you, Adam? Well, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And it's not just that he has compassion on me or any of us. He condescends in a good way to know us. Verse 14. He himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are dust. I don't appreciate being condescended to, top down. Uh, you know, being back in L.A., I like to go get coffee. And there's some coffee shops around here. Not in Santa Clarita so much. But there's other ones that... I just feel I'm being talked down to. I mean, I might mispronounce espresso. It's my old Pittsburghese coming out. And I can just see the disdain in the barista's face towards me. When I ask for like the 40th time, what's a cappuccino again? Oh. And, and they, they don't even want to, I mean, it's like they don't even want my business anymore. No, I just came from Hickory. All we had was Dunkin' Donuts. And so that's, that was my option for coffee in my town. Town of 40,000. And so I don't appreciate being condescended to. Somebody that looks down and sees me in my small little frame and highlights that. My stupidity, my falling short. But yet, isn't God so perfect in his condescension to us? Verse 14. He himself knows our frame. He knows what we're made of. He is mindful we are dust, 15 and 16. How temporary we are. And he understands that about us. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. All this in David's mind is saying, look, soul, you're not the first person to come along to mess up. You're not the first person to come along to sin. God knows you. He knows your frame. He knows what you're like. And he has compassion on you like a good, loving father. So soul, can you be lifted up to remember that though you are transitory, you're dealing with a God. Verse 17, look at that. The loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children and to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. He reminds himself of his own transitory nature and the transcendent nature of God, that he's not the first one to come along with this problem. 
to feel guilty, to feel racked by his sin, and then to have to say, but look how God has always treated his children, as bad as they got. And I'm sure David had time to contemplate his sin and what he had done and then be reminded, but look at Israel. Look how God has been faithful to Moses and the children of Israel. And so he expanded in 6 to 18 about the goodness of God being loving, kind to him and to them and to all of us. And so by now, his soul has been so lifted up, it ends in verse 19 with the last section of this passage, how God has been good in all his creation. And as Josh mentioned earlier, I think we learned from this that praise is not befitting just to be kept to ourselves when we're feeling excited and joyful and thankful for something. I mean, just look around you. I mean, whether it's you or somebody else, do you not just, when something good happens to you, you're excited for something, are you not eager to tell somebody about it? I mean, Instagram is evidence of this fact. We can't help but show the good things that happen to us. We don't know all our motives for that, but I think at the very basic motive, why we like certain social media is the same reason that before social media existed, we would get on the phone and call someone and say, you'll never believe what just happened to me. It's so good. Or you tell somebody, hey, I just had a great lunch over at this place. Why don't you come with me next time? Or that your spouse does something wonderful to you and you're so thankful for it that you tell them about it. Thank you for that. What you just did for me was so great and you tell someone else about it. My wife just made me the best dessert. Why? Because the way God has wired us that we see in this last section is that praise is not just enough to be kept to ourselves. It's most befitting when the object of the worship is so worthy that we want to tell as many people about it as we can. And that's what makes God unique, that he deserves all the glory and all the praise. Because all the ends of the earth are to praise him. Everybody at some point in history will gather and bow and worship Jesus Christ. And he's worthy of it. So David, as he brings his soul to the crescendo of praise in 19 to 22... He gets to the heavens. 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. So he calls on the angels in 20 and the hosts in 21 and says, you guys doing his will, mighty in strength, obeying his voice, bless the Lord with me. Praise God with me. And then he just reaches out to the extremities of the galaxy and says, bless the Lord, all you works of his and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. He comes back from the farthest expanse of the galaxy to the smallest place. There is his own soul, his own place where God's glory can dwell, where he could bring praise to God in his own soul. It's, it's not enough to start at the beginning with his own soul, so he expanded it out. But now he wraps his arms back and brings it back together in 22 and says, In all places of his dominion, bless the Lord, O my soul. And I would just say that that's, that's what I take away from this by the end. That though it's right for me to see Psalm 103 and be reminded of the personal and intentional ways I can bless God and praise his name, it's also good for me to do that with others. And so it's fitting this morning that we'll sing in conclusion 10,000 Reasons. I'm glad Josh picked that today because the proper way for a meditation in Psalm 103 to end would be to sing its praises. But I would like to close by reading one of my old, uh, favorite old hymns, familiar to many of you, a classic that I think just strikes right at the chord of what we're to do with a psalm like this. 
It's count your blessings. It says, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged, God is over all. Count your many blessings, angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for Psalm 103 and its timely reminder of the great many blessings you've given to us in Jesus Christ. Father, we don't rush past saying that you've given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And that's where we start and we move out from there to trace the many benefits you've given us as our healer, as our redeemer, as our restorer, as our renewer, as our strengthener. Yes, in many ways, Father, this morning, you cause us and, and may your spirit lead us in seeing your many benefits to us. But most of all, Father, may we rejoice now as we sing here, remembering the greatest benefit you've given us in the gospel. May Christ be precious to us this morning as we would sing. And as Psalm 34 declared, it is fitting for us to praise you, those who are upright in heart, to declare your praises because you are upright. We are reflecting back to you your goodness to us. And we praise you for that today. It's in Christ's name. Amen.